Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Simeon Zoll. Simeon is University Lecturer in Christian Theology at the University of Cambridge. He's the author of Pneumatology and Theology of the Cross and the Preaching of Christoph Friedrich Blumhart, the Holy Spirit between Wittenberg and Azusa Street. He recently wrote an article that appeared in the Scottish Journal of Theology called Tradition and Its Use, The Ethics of Theological Retrieval. It's a great piece dealing with the theologian's self-awareness when they're employing sources in their work. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Simeon's all. Simeon, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. You are professor of theology at Cambridge University in the UK. I mean, is that is it over? I mean, you, have you peaked? Basically, you're not you're you're a young guy, but you've sort of you're at Cambridge. I mean, where do you go from here? Well, right now I'm in the basement. They've given me a basement office, so I think I could at least go to a higher office within the building. So there's that exaltation in a basement, right? Like you know, actually, literally a basement. You know, maybe you'll be exalted. You know, from your state of a, ba- a basement. I wonder if there's any etymological connection there between basement and a basement. Probably is. You come from a theological family. Your dad, Paul Zoll, is a theologian. And you have some other brothers who, well, they're like Christians, but, you know, we, that's about all we can say. You know? <laughs> that's it, yeah. Yeah. I, so you are you, you have written on Luther, on the Holy Spirit, on sin, on emotions, and a host of other things. And you've just written a really interesting piece in the Cambridge uh, Theological, or wait, Scottish Journal of Theology. That's right. right? It was SJT, but published by Cambridge University. Oh, it's all in house, right? Like it's all, it's all, and it's tradition and its use, the ethics of theological retrieval. And in this, basically, you're kind of getting at the fact that we, we, every, like every religious tradition that does theology kind of, it, it, it uses traditions as a resource somehow, like things, voices from the past, often to invigorate the, the present conversation and to shed new light on issues in a given context. But so, but very often, we're not explicitly attentive to how we're using it or why we're using it. And, and you sort of use Luther as an example of someone who is pretty attentive to what he's doing when he's using resources from the past, and that that's not an insignificant insight, right? Yes, that's that's exactly right. Uh, you know, in my job as a theologian, you know, you, most of what you do, most of what you read, uh, most of what you teach is is the past tradition. You're always trying to um, bring back to life or repair or critique deposits from the past. It's a really, really long, uh, long set of discourses, and, and so that's how you have to engage. But I think a lot of theology today does. Um, does this without kind of reflecting on on why it's doing it or or the ethics involved or or the way in which we kind of use and abuse uh, tradition. It's interesting because if we had like a parallel, say if we were thinking about American constitutional studies, right? Now England doesn't have a, a written constitution, something that even though Churchill was a lover of the Constitution, mm-hmm. American Constitution, he thought that it's better to not have a written one. But but he says there is something interesting that 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 is good about it because there's a reverence for the founding charter. And so then, you know, we're often trying to figure out what we, we, what the meaning of the constitution is and, 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 and do we interpret it, you know, are, are we to interpret it kind of more, uh, as it was written in its original context or a living developing uh, sort of understanding of it. But very often it seems like we're pretty attentive to how that conversation's driven politically that oftentimes it, it, it seems clear, like when somebody's saying they're originalist or something, and they have a certain perspective on guns or on the, the states' rights or something, or or they're what they want gun control or something. It seems like there's multiple motives at play, and 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 that's very on the table very often, right? But 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 somehow in theology, sometimes it seems like those sort of motives are not paid attention to as carefully, basically to where we're going from the sort of 
say primary sources, which may be something or the, or the chief source, which may be like for Christians, the revelation of God in Christ, you know, born witness to in scripture and, and, you know, and how we're coming to that with other sources. And, and, and maybe there's uh, some self-deception at times <laughs> by theologians you're arguing. <laughs> well, it's a funny mix of things because, um, you know, theologians have been reflecting on those things in relation to the biblical text, in relation to scripture, you know, forever. It's what hermeneutics you know, as a, you know, as a whole idea of inter- paying attention to how you interpret text, you know, comes out of um, theological reflection in Christianity and Judaism. Uh, on these scriptural texts, but we're less reflective often on the sort of the other stuff we talk about, you know, Aquinas or Augustine or certain confessional documents. I mean, a lot of, um, you know, these sort of big influential documents basically from the past, certainly in relation to Christianity. And so what you have instead are people who are writing, um, you know, they're in a certain denomination. You know, for me, it's Calvin is the person who I, whose texts I kind of reverence and who have a kind of life beyond just their time. But the Calvin person maybe isn't that interested in what the Aquinas person says, whereas other people view Aquinas as this, this sort of massive, um, really important source. Either way, I think people, once they have their kind of confessional background, what, they, what theology thinks it's doing is to say, well, what is the case? Simply, what is the right answer to the question? And maybe Luther was right, maybe Aquinas was right. And, uh, you know, that, that partly because these things matter to people. These answers to religious questions aren't just, it's not just pragmatics of how things play out in the world. People actually want to know what the truth of, of reality is. Um, so I think maybe somehow that has occluded the kind of reflection on these dynamics, at least in certain kinds of mainstream theology um, that needs to happen. Yeah. It, it, as I was reading your piece, I was thinking, well, several voices came to mind, but I was thinking of Nietzsche saying that, you know, all philosophy is basically the personal confession of the philosopher. And so for him, the ad hominem argument wasn't off the table. It was one of the only kind of arguments that mattered, right? You can't separate the person from, uh, you know, their work. And and Luther seemed keenly aware of this tendency of our own sort of, you know, psychological drives, our, our, our own will, desire, and how that affects dealing with these things, right? That we're whole people, right? And that, that you know, Nietzsche is sort of, a master of sort of uh, an estimation of the human condition that takes all our sorted drives, the, you know, the ones we're aware of, the ones we aren't, really seriously. And it sounds like you're saying oftentimes that kind of, Luther has that kind of perspective too. And that we might need a little more of that because maybe there's ethical concerns and things coming into play, things about, you know, gender or race or just our own egos or our our desire for institutional loyalties and preservations and all these things that are at play when we're just simply picking up Augustine or Luther that we don't even know are in play. Yes, exactly. And that's part of what got me, I mean, there are two things that got me thinking about these things. First was this kind of frustration with theologians just constantly pretending they're um, interacting with the text they're thinking kind of, kind of in a vacuum um, uh, in a way that just was obviously not true. It's, you know, you see it with, uh, you know, when you're actually teaching, you know, we're all kind of engaged with these kind of psychodynamics of teachers and students and, um, what we're trying to show that we're smart and all these kinds of things. And that's so obviously what's driving a lot of what happens day to day. And not, that doesn't mean that the conversations aren't real or that the content isn't significant or that the answers aren't, aren't true. Um, but those dynamics are so obviously in play and they're also there in the way that we, Right. Um, and so, yeah, Luther was really uh, aware of these things. And I guess he had a way of talking about it that helps you bridge the way that we're talking today a lot about um, structural problems in the world and you know, racism, uh, misogyny, privilege, these kinds of things. And the way that they're, you know, we've sort of gotten to the point where we, we're now finally realized that these things are often operating unconsciously or not fully consciously, that just that someone can be um, can not think that they're a racist and still be a racist, you know, that, that kind of dynamic. Luther had really powerful categories for thinking about that kind of thing in relation to how he understood idolatry. So he was always interested, what makes a thing an idol is your relationship to it, what you bring to the table, what you expect to get from it, rather than the inherent nature of the thing. Yeah, you have this really interesting observation about Luther's view of of ontology and substances. You know, in medieval, the medieval tradition, he was working in the wake of, he thought, well, once you know, to know something is to know what its substance or its essence is. And then you'll know a lot about it. And Luther says, oh, no, I don't know that you'd really, that's, I was thinking when I was reading that of Martin Heidegger, you know, he's thinking when he's working on ontological questions, he inherits this tradition of 
well, you know, what, what a thing is, this essence is sort of the static thing or this thing different than human beings. Now that actually, you know, a hammer, we don't, everything is like equipment to us. Everything is about acts and things we care of and our commitments. And so I don't really think about what a hammer's like until it breaks or something, right? Otherwise, it's just part, it's a tool, it's part of a whole apparatus of things I care about and how I want to use things and my commitments and my cares of how I'm thrown into this life. That's what shapes what things are to a human being, not these abstract essences. And it seems like Luther's saying the same thing, like that, that it's things like theological concepts, ideas, these things, they how we're in relationship to them and the end to which we use them. And he, you say he's working off Augustine here too. That really tells us a lot more about our, about things than some abstract idea. Yes. Yeah, so it, it gives us this crucial sort of, um, it tells half the story, I would say. I mean, what I don't want to say is that the thing, the meaning of the thing simply reduces, and Luther wouldn't want to say the meaning of the thing reduces to our relationship to it. Um, because he did think, you know, that, you know, a shovel, you can use a shovel to hit someone in the head to dig with, but you can't use it to fly to the moon. You know, I mean, there, there things do have substance, substances do have certain shape and character, but that fact doesn't mean uh, that there isn't still an enormous amount um, that we bring to the table uh, in our kind of subjectivity. And that's, and he thinks that's where theology happens because that's where ethics happens. That's where what you, what you do is, is right or wrong, whether you treat something as a, as a God or not, whether you treat someone else as a means to an end or as a person to love, that's all happening at the level of intention in a way that precedes and, and exceeds um, the specific act of, you know, doing something with that person. It's, it's your intention there is actually what matters before God and therefore ethically. So as I, I'm reading your piece, I'm thinking, so is the problem that theology today is too anthropological or not anthropological enough in the sense of, it, I mean, that on one level, it, it, we could, there's critiques of people that say, oh, theology today, it's really just, you know, religious studies very often, or it's just sort of cultural constructs, you know, or studying, you know, it has a sort of very horizontal picture as opposed to a vertical one related to transcendence. But then you could say, well, maybe it's not anthropological enough in that it doesn't take a full-orbed understanding of the human that, say, Luther or Augustine had. They really would actually, you know, it's, what does Calvin say? Knowledge of God, knowledge of self. They both lined up the same place. That if you really had that kind of deep anthropology, that might recast the way we think about the theological enterprise, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we're there's a lot of good theology out there that is analyzing the way in which, especially structural forces or long um, intellectual histories, affect and inform where we're at. I mean, Cameron Carter's work on sort of racial logics underpinning modern theology is a really good example there. Um, and so I think we're better with structures. Structures are a little easier because you can analyze them. They're out there. They're not like, whereas the stuff I'm talking about in the article is partly it's, it's our feelings. It's our relationship to a thing in a way that's much harder to get at in an academic key. Uh, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't try because it's these are the things that are, that are playing such a huge role from day to day. And I think um, what's different about Luther uh, and like Augustine, I mean, they're they making assumptions about human nature, especially that, that we're always... Um, desiring things. We're always um, interested in things for reasons to do with um, our own ends or, or God. I mean, they're thinking about human motivation, I guess, in a way that um, some theology today doesn't, uh, or doesn't as much as it should. But it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about motivation because I, you know, I don't even know my own motivation, much less yours. So you kind of have to track it indirectly. Yeah, it's really interesting. I had I've had this Enneagram expert on a couple of times, Suzanne Stabile, and she talks about the Enneagram personality test and why it's so easy to miss tests because she's like, most personality tests are geared towards behavior and the Enneagram is really about motivation. So, so two people uh, could have similar behaviors and be very different types because it's all about motivation for it. Um, as opposed to most personality tests are very, you know, behavior driven, obviously, because it's easier to measure. It's, it's, but you know, I always think if Nietzsche and Augustine <laughs> agree on something, it has to be true. And I, I just, you know, it's like if you, that Venn diagram, it's just like it almost never works out. That's wrong. But, but I think they would both agree. Like if I ask you what you think and you tell me, I, I might get some sense of fear. But if I can figure out what you want, I know a whole lot about you, right? That we're creatures of the will. And what is that in the big chill? Jeff Goldblum says, you know, human being can get through a day without food or sex, but not without a good rationalization. 
and, and so oftentimes the will, the mind is just coming along the will, right, to to rationalize what we really want. And it sounds like some of what you're saying is that that what we desire shapes so much of everything we do, and it doesn't stop when people are doing the yes, work. Yes, exactly, uh, exactly, and that's why um, you know it's a way of thinking about theology that that uh, elides or blurs the difference between sort of the you know the, the truth out here and just the practical pastoral the homiletic those kinds of things it's it's a way of saying well actually theology is always performing it's always and it's always happening sort of before god you know a theologian would say is and it's never sort of neutral uh in that sense because the theologian is always there uh you know being a person before god in the act of doing theology of trying to be creative or have some insight and they're doing that while embedded in a context that's going to affect what they attend to i mean one thing i think it's especially you know people who push back on this stuff i say well but surely you, theologian, you know, you know, why are you interested in those questions? Why has your whole career been devoted to, you know, debunking predestination or whatever it is, you know? And that has to do with your history, inevitably. It's some, you know, so you're in reaction to something or you're trying to support something that, that meant a lot to you. Um, and that doesn't make it wrong, but we have to be willing to have a vocabulary for talking about those things um, or else we're going to be blindsided um, by what's really going on in theology well, or anything else, really. But Yeah, and it... it I think of like Michael Polanyi's work, you know, where, where he and or people like uh, Thomas Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions. I mean, they were making this point with science, right? That people have this sort of disinterested view of of scientists that they're just. But you know, once you choose to study rocks rather than flowers, you've made a there's value choices there, even in your courses of study. And so that very often, you know, Polanyi would argue that you know people sort of develop their have these intuitions and hunches that are often good and then they try to sort of rationalize it on the back end and that's when they succeed the, the hypothesis works but there's often all these sort of very subjective motive motives in in this so he's rather than objective and subjective truth he liked public versus private truths like am i you know am i willing to sort of say this is ready for to be looked at on all sides in the public square to see if it holds up, you know, as opposed to objective and subjective, which I mean, he thought were it, it, that that's too discreet, right? That's too that's too neat and tidy, right? And it sounds like you're sort of saying that too that uh, the objective and the subjective in the theological enterprise or any academic dis, uh, discipline are are, are they're messy, messy. Uh, and they're and they're also irreducible, um, uh, and so yeah, that's that's the starting point, um, and I think. Uh, it's where your insight comes from. This is often what I tell students, you know, who are struggling, who may be doing all the right work, writing all the footnotes, they've read everything right, but they're trying, they haven't yet figured out what they have to say, what they actually have to contribute to the discipline, which especially at a graduate level, you know, is crucial. Uh, it's a difference between, between okay work and great work. Very often I say, well, what is the thing you actually care about? Or what is the thing that makes you angry? What is the thing that, um, that got you into this? Or what is the, uh, you know, what, what do you care about? And they say, but I thought I'm supposed to be objective and not pay attention to that stuff. I said, well, you bring tools to bear. You bring it to light. You're not naive about it. But very often, those kinds of things are where your insight comes from. Um, I was listening to a podcast, actually, a couple of weeks ago. It's called On Theory, and it's fantastic. It's this guy who's a philosopher and teaches film studies at the University of, of Vermont, Todd McGowan, and one of his former students. It's called Why Theory, and it's amazing. And they do a lot of stuff with Hegel and philosophy and analytics, like 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 psychology, Lacan, but they, they bring these conversations to bear in practical things. And they were talking about the politics of desire and how basically what we desire in the sort of psychoanalytic sense is this, it's the guilty pleasure. It's the thing that we get pleasure and yet it also kills, it, it, it threatens our finitude in some sense, right? It's not just something desirable, but it's something that, that, that triggers that, you know, it's the guilty pleasure thing. It's why McDonald's is enjoyable, you know, even though we know it's bad for us kind of thing. And they were saying that, you know, they were explaining the Trump phenomenon. It's just, it's des pure desire. He's the most, you know, that these people aren't stupid at the rally. They know he's lying when he says, we've got the wall almost built. But it's the desire. It makes it an even guiltier pleasure. Yeah, we're owning the libs. Yeah. And so, like, this, it does this deep. But he, they were saying that, that Nietzsche comes along and says everything is sort of subconsciously power-driven. And they thought that was a little adolescent and a little early in thinking. Then Foucault comes and makes power ethical, right? So everything's... But then he says, you know, Democrats and liberals have really embraced that view of power, right? But then the problem is everyone has to use power. And when you use it, you look hypocritical as a liberal. 
And conservatives, even though they don't understand these theories, they work them better. And how basically that, that this understanding things like desire psychologically are, are, are much deeper than this sort of moralizing of power than Foucault does, right? And it seems like what you're saying, like there are a lot of things about structure and power and, and things like that in academic circles. But when you go a little deeper analytically, right, to, to, to the things that are, you know, the underground rivers and then the underground rivers beneath the underground rivers, that conversation's not taking place. Yet. Well, it certainly isn't in theology. I think it is a bit through um, affect theory, which is something I find very interesting. It's come out of, come out of literary studies, queer theory uh, kind of stuff, um, which is, it's kind of, it is sort of trendy, but it's partly because it's exactly paying attention to these other dimensions, these material dimensions, these embodied dimensions that you can't quite just get at by trying to fix the discourse, um, or it acknowledges the ways in which uh, what we think and what we do is is stubborn uh, and and resists resists discursive or rational um, kind of change, and uh, so I'm I'm in t- you know that's something I'm in dialogue with and that I'm I'm thinking about and I think in a way Luther was an affect theorist and so was Augustine. Uh, they were thinking very very deeply about um, these inner um, you know these subtle motivations. But Luther was this monk who spent the first this whole this decade just kind of analyzing his motivations. That's what you did as an Augustinian. Friar was sort of to, to see what you needed to confess. You had to do this incredible sort of self-analysis, and it was kind of got got ridiculous at a certain point. But nevertheless, it gave him a very sensitive instrument for thinking about um, these big, powerful things in our life that were, are not always explicit, that we're not always that conscious of, and yet which drive what we do. And, and Frederick Schleiermacher, you know, the great one of the first early great modern theologians. I mean, it, is of this persuasion too. I mean, he, you know, he wants to think that. I mean, Schleiermacher gets misunderstood a lot, I think, because he had no real disciples. But, you know, he wants to make have an experiential theology. And by that, he's, he doesn't mean that in, in a shallow way. I mean, he means figuring out the sort of social experience of what Christian piety is. Like, what does it mean to be connected to redemption through Jesus? And then taking that seriously in theology. I mean, like, like one of the things that's so interesting, and, you know, we, people could dicker with him on the substance of this, but it's interesting. He says, you know, Creation out of nothing, ex nihilo, is not a theological question because it affects no one's piety. Like no one sits around, oh my gosh, I, I thought about this. And it, it, he's like, it's a question for metaphysicians and cosmologists and philosophers. Now, providence, you can't get out of bed in the morning if you don't believe the system has come together to work for Christ and connect you to him. If you don't have that sense, you're not a, the whole thing will fall apart. Absolutely. And Schleiermacher, I mean, you know, and he, he gave birth to a whole lot of really interesting stuff in the 19th century. And I think in a way that, but there, as you know, there was this massive reaction against him and against all the worries that come from when you're starting to do theology and dialogue with experience in such an explicit way that you start becoming uncritical. Um, you start, you know, engaging in new kinds of idolatry. And uh, I think theology in the well, 21st century is still reeling from Karl Barth's big critique of Schleiermacher in that kind of way. It's another reason why we're so tentative about talking about experience, at least in the sort of, in the mainstream. I think more more political theologies are, are very, have been happy to do this for a long time. Um, but it's the kind of mainstream dogmatic, systematic kind of theology is still so worried that we're, they're going to um, get something wrong if they talk too closely the in dialogue with experience the way that Schleiermacher uh, did. But the, the truth is we can't escape it. We're always doing it, whether we admit it or not. And uh, that's what I'm interested in. And, and, but also the fact that we're always working out of our experience, including in piety and that, that Schleiermacher had a massive point there. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that are, that are true, um, or things that can be said better or worse. And which I think is is the fear people often have is that it all becomes sort of anyone's game. Um, and it's all just, it just becomes a game rather than, uh, trying to talk about real things. But so, you, would your defense of this sort of, because you probably come from a tribe theologically that is wary of this stuff, right? Is your defense go back to use theory? Like, well, how are you using it? You know, and that, that if you're using the affective aspect of life, you can use it as a way to, that's proper and fitting and its end is, you know, the glory of God and the enjoyment of that, or that is, you know, to your own self-aggrandizement or, or yeah, some and that's other why uh, attending to use shows that it's not just the thing it's it's uh, it's what you do with it um, and yeah and that in itself is in a way is a neutral fact because it, like you say it can be either it can be done you know it can be a use or an abuse but either way you have this kind of relation to to the object Peter Lightheart wrote a great article a couple of years ago about the Eucharist it's called the Eucharist eschatology and culture the way things ought to be 
And in the beginning of it, he says, you know, for too much of the tradition, we've had what he calls a zoom angle lens on the Eucharist. What's going on between the elements and the person? You know, and he's like, I want to go back to something like Corinthians and Paul seeing the whole cosmic, you know, the table of the Lord or demons. And if the rich people are, are, are getting drunk and have eaten all the things, you know, how does this, what kind of picture of Christ is this? You know, like that. And he's like, a wide angle lens is often helpful for what's going on in the, in the drama of, 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 the, of the Eucharist. It, it almost sounds like you're saying use theory is a little like that, too. Like, we, get, we need a kind of wide angle. We need a lens of the theologian as a whole person, right? That, that, that will give a better perspective on—because on, on, you need something like that to understand how you're using a thing at all, right? It's got to be part of some story. It's got to be part of— uh, uh, of a narrative of, 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 you know, which has cultural factors and relational factors. And unless you know that, you're not going to have a sense for the work you're doing. Yes, I think that's exactly right. But I guess then part of what, what made the article sort of difficult and fun and hopefully maybe new was that I was giving the, a the, an explicitly theological rationale for that, one that will be persuasive to someone who maybe doesn't want to hear what I'm saying. Um, so it's not just a, not just a political rationale. Uh, it's a rationale that it says, actually, this is, this is fundamental to your status before God, whether you're committing idolatry or not. Uh, so Luther was, the, the kind of arguments he was making that led him to start thinking about the theologian as a whole or person engaging in theology. Um, they, these were not, uh, art, they, these were deeply theological arguments about the nature of humanity, the, the relationship with God coming right out of Augustine. So that's part of why I sort of say we, theologians have to engage with this stuff, even if they don't want to, um, for theological reasons. The ethical reasons, in a way, are obvious to think about these things these days. It's the theological rationale that needed some, um, you know, that I was just trying to contribute to. And it just seemed that Luther was so good at this stuff. He was so, although, of course, he had all his other problems, but he um, was extremely sensitive instrument to the kinds of things that we're dealing with today. When, when Karl Barth is sort of reflecting on Schleiermacher's legacy, you know, another great, you know, the great modern theologian assessing another great modern thing, he says maybe really what he was doing was a theology of the third article. And, and, you know, how Bart thought everything's got to be about Jesus, you know, the word of God. And if it's if it doesn't stand or fall with Christology, it's going to get disoriented. And he thinks maybe Schleiermacher's thinking through the third article, through through the spirit and and you know, the creature of the spirit, the church. And, and I mean, I mean, is that, I wonder if that's a sort of lens at, at which some of these things can be gotten at uh, through, I mean, you talk about salvation and sin as being something that's really important in, in this methodological conversation. I also wonder, you know, the spirit and, and, you know, I mean, Paul seems to think there's two kinds of ways to live, right? There's life animated by the flesh and life animated by the spirit. And so these are kind of, our uses are going to be towards one pole or the other. Absolutely. Right? And I mean, Luther himself is already, as he says at one point, I think I quote it in the article, that the spirit is in the use, not the object. So he's explicitly associating pneumatology with, with use dynamics. But I think that's right. And that's when, you know, I'm writing a book on the Holy Spirit right now. And partly because the Holy Spirit language is the, the classical, is the grammar that Christians have to talk about God actually doing stuff in the world. Whenever we want to talk about the sort of the, the point of contact between God and creation, where things actually, where, where the rubber hits the road uh, in our lives and our bodies and all these kinds of things, then, then that pneumatology is the natural language. The fruit of the spirit are emotions and affections and dispositions. Um, the, the spirit does very concrete things like healing and guiding and calling and speaking. Um, and so that's, that's the, the challenge of talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, but also the, the power of it is that you can't just sort of do it in the library in the same kind of way. Doing good pneumatology means in being aware of yourself uh, as a body, as a theologian, as a sinner, uh, all those things as a person before God um, and as part of a community and a world before God. So, um, yes, absolutely. On the pneumatology front, it's all it's all connected to me. I, I wonder how that endeavor plays out in the contemporary context where so often, you know, in, in like Ellen Cherry's book by the renewing of your mind, it's a great, was really influential. When I first read it, gosh, years ago. And, you know, she argues that if you look at pre-modern theologians, they're all pastors. They're all, they're all working in the church. They're bishops. They're, you know, Augustine, Luther, they're, they're preaching, they're working in their, their whole life is ecclesial, right? So there's not this academic theologian here and pa the pastoral track over here. And very often there's no, I mean, you know, there's no institutional connections in a lot of instances, right, between a theologian who 
serves one institution and you know the the people in the pews i mean so i wonder how does how does this flesh itself out when the context for the theologian is a really different kind of institution than the church right i mean where you where you get paid you know who you know who who gives you your gorgeous basement office you know and what kind of commitment that's really different in the modern world when it's a university context as opposed to even in a pre-modern university where everything's that's, run by the church. That's true. And that's one of the ways that, one of the things that makes theology such an interesting <laughs> subject, just strange subject, you know, I'm here in Cambridge, you know, I go to high table and uh, often a question you can say, oh, you do Christian theology. Well, does that mean that you're uh, a priest or you're a minister or, or that you're just training uh, people for ministry primarily? And uh, it's a complicated question because on the one hand, I mean, I'm not. And uh, and that in their eyes gives me the sort of more legitimacy that somehow I'm, I'm being objective. Um so of course everyone's implicated in, in what they're studying. You know, English people study English history. It doesn't mean that they uh, are necessarily unobjective for that reason. But the um, on the other hand, I think we, what one thing we're learning more and more in theology is that if you really want to do theology, well, at least the, the church fathers, really, really everyone before the early modern period, uh, it was very clear that they thought that you couldn't really do be a good theologian unless you were someone who prayed and who was uh, lived a, a holy life. You can't really understand the doctrine of the, you learn the doctrine of the Trinity by becoming more holy, not by becoming smarter or reading more books or having it explained to you. And uh, those kinds of instances, so th- those are important and those are serious. And that's another way into these dynamics where our subjectivity is involved in our insight and in our work and in how we uh, what we have to contribute to the world. So. Um, it's a it's a tough one in a university context, actually. I guess I try to do both in a way. Um, and there, there, you sort of have different hats in different places. So when you're when you're standing up lecturing, you're you're in a certain kind of academic mode. Um, but when I'm doing my work, my research, often the the insights come much more from the the subjective side. Uh, I guess uh, at least that, that's where they start. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you. David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig. Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Do, do you think, in the UK, I mean, you are in a much more secular sort of what we call like post-Christendom, sort of post-Christian context than, say, the American Southeast or the Bible Belt in the United States or some, you know, something like that. Uh, maybe, I mean, there might be, there's certain sort of blue state metro areas that might be a little more akin to, but I mean, in general, I think places like England and the UK and most of Western Europe are much further secularized, right? D- does that make this job of sorting out the, these confusing roles easier or harder? That's a good question. It, it makes it, it, well, on the surface, it makes it harder because you're always having to justify your existence in a pretty direct way or often having to, um, in a way that, uh, I find is actually very sort of sharpening and, and, um, kind of inspires creativity. But, but on the other hand, it makes it clear, you know, you, you see things I mean, I, that I wouldn't see if I were, you know, I remember going to, uh, in high school, in college, I went to visit a friend who was going at some Southern university and went to the Christian fellowship and there were 600 kids there. It was like the most normal thing in the, in the world to, for every single kid at this university to go to their college fellowship group. And then I went up 
to Harvard and it was like 15 kids and it was a big deal. And so living in the UK, you have some of that same kind of thing. You're aware of, of these wider trends in the world. You realize when you walk down, when I talk to my uh, parents of my kids' friends, you know, they just don't know what to do with a theologian. They, that, 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 that kind of just implicit secularism now that's gone, it's gone so far that people just don't even know what a theologian does uh, anymore. And you have to explain. I think that helps. Um, actually, it helps you see what the problems are. It helps you learn how to articulate what you're doing in a way that is compelling, not just as insider baseball um, and say, well, actually, you know, these things have shaped a lot of stuff that is around us right now and are worth understanding regardless. So you're often kind of making that pitch, sort of pitch to why this stuff is interesting in a secular way. But on the other hand, um, you still want to be serving the, you know, the Christians, the church, the people who really care deeply and uh, who a lot, a lot of the students end up being. And um, uh, so you sort of have to wear multiple hats that way. But I'm, I'm glad for it. I like this context. I think it's part of why so much good theology is coming out of the UK as of, you know, as of late. It's a, it's a really good mix of um, still doing real Christian theology um, in a way that is not totally sort of apologetic, but at the same time um, doing it in a context where it's very aware of its need to, to talk to the wider secular world. I had a friend, a guy on the show, Glenn Scrivener, who works in the UK, produces some really interesting Advent films, and he, he works in a in an outreach ministry in England. And he said, you know, that nobody would use the term evangelical to have anything to do with politics. And he goes to what would be called an evangelical church in England. And his congregation is equally mixed of labor, conservative party and, and, and liberal Democrats. They could just not, I think, whereas here, I mean, it, it's, I just had someone on the show, Michelle Margolis, who's in poli at Penn. She's saying, it's not that, Religion's driving politics. Politics is now driving religion. Like when young families are at that age, well, hey, maybe we're not going to church. Maybe we should. If they're Republicans, they're way more likely to go to church. If they're Democrats, they're, not, they're way less likely. So it's it's now. So I mean, I wonder how that it's it's it, 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 it's just like it seems the theological project. I mean, I get books pitched to the podcast all the time. It's half the theological ones. I got one about Bonhoeffer with Trump in the title, right? <laughs> just it's ubiquitous. I mean, you know, like I I wonder uh, how is that different in the UK? You know, because and and are you talking with a lot with? theologians in america who I mean, trump is everywhere i mean it's just like the politics and, and and the wider politics of the kind of right versus left tribalism just shapes that conversation in in such deep ways here it seems yeah i mean you'll i'm you know you'll know it in some ways better than i i've been over here for so long i see it from afar i'm reading about it all the time i'm engaging uh you know in this mediated way um but uh, but I've lived over here since since college pretty much. So I, I and that also frees me here. I don't have to get involved in political conversations over here because I still don't fully you know it's, I'm an outsider in other you know uh, in ways that I'm not um, in the states even after all this time. So I think um, it does affect certainly. It, it makes sense that theology is deeply political in America these days, or a lot of it, and, and is engaged very directly with those things. And that, that's you know it's a strength and it can be a weakness. Um, uh, the best is when it's both. And I think probably Americans might say that, that a lot of British theology is, is complacent, uh, and still acting like, uh, we don't live in a world that seems to be falling apart in all different ways. Um, and that what's, what good is your theology if it's not getting you out in the world and that, that kind of thing. And, you know, but then, you know, say, oh, well, we need to, we need to balance, balance is such a boring, boring term. I know from where I'm coming from, um, I'm trying to mediate between those two perspectives as an American in the British theological context. Um, but I don't have the answers. I'll tell you, I, 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 after watching the crown on Netflix, I watched the queen's Easter message uh, or your Christmas message rather on Christmas morning. And I found it pretty moving. I, I, <laughs> I thought, you know, wow. I mean, uh, Maybe a monarchy's not bad. You know, I, you know, I talked to a Presbyterian executive once that said I'd like to be a bishop for one day a month, and you know, have <laughs> that kind of unilateral power. But just like once a month, it's kind of like ah, there's a couple days a year I might want to live in a monarchy if the queen comes out and says this. It's a beautiful thing for the head of state to sort of have this this really beautiful message uh, at the message of Christmas. It is. It is indeed. I think it's a it's a unique thing. It's a one. I mean, we'll see what happens next. Um, but yes, that's a remarkable thing about here. And you see it also, you know, my kids go to a school that's part of a college. And so the opening service of the year was in this beautiful, massive um, medieval 
chapel, uh, college chapel that was just st- just stunning and singing these hymns. And, and you did feel like, well, maybe, you know, the, the, w- w- everything's not quite as uh, completely secularized. Christianity isn't as completely forgotten uh, as as the hype might have us think, but partly because this the stuff is here, the material, the beauty of, of Evensong and of these uh, these actual buildings sitting in Cambridge. Every other building here is a, is a gorgeous um church and people still go to them uh maybe on a smaller scale uh so there is something that that feels very different than the state the way in which it's embedded in the structure of the country of the culture even if people don't like it it's just there um in a way that uh you know i think the maybe part of what's happening with the queen comes out of um whereas in the states it's a it's a completely different uh dynamic yeah our head of state it's not very articulate theologically or very many other ways (laughs) I, we worship our Lord and Savior and more glory and glory. <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, I'm waiting for him to build like Trump Cathedral for Jerry Falwell Jr. or something. I, I, I'm wondering, as someone who's, you know, a, a theologian that, you know, I, I, on the front leg of your career, right? I mean, you're, you know, you're not winding down. You're, you're in the sort of, you know, spring or whatever, not the winter of your, of your life. I mean, what? What do you what do you see on the horizon that excites you about the field? And, and what is what's out there that you're like, oh gosh, that's going to be out before it's in? And if this thing catches on, you know, it, 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 it's a virus that you know is going to really cause some hiccups. That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. So I, mean, I, I kind of was trained in a period where I, I really wasn't a fan of a lot was a, of, was a lot of what was going on around. I mean, there were there were individual figures and movements and stuff that I got a lot out of, including my own teacher, David Ford, here in Cambridge. Um, but uh, very often, I grew up with either everyone was sort of, um, well, actually the dominant thing in theology, and has been almost the whole time I've been studying 15 years, has been some form of the recovery of the insights of Thomism and to some degree Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and that's been going on for a while. Why, why, why do you think, why is, is, is that Aquinas for, you know, people that are interested in Catholic tradition and Eastern Orthodoxy, why has that been so dominant the past 15 years? Is this kind of Protestantism, sort of Protestant insecurity, kind of, you know, like, is it, is it, is it tradition envy? I mean, why has that been so, you know, dominant on the landscape? I have a lot to say about that question, but uh, there's a re- I would say, so there's a number of things. Um, one is actually the way it was paved by a lot of work in biblical studies, I think, which is what makes it go mainstream with Christians. If it doesn't trickle into biblical studies, if it's not Tom Wright talking about these kinds of things, about virtue and about, uh, and, and so on, then then it doesn't trickle um down so anyway it has a lot to do with developments in biblical studies has a lot to do with is that because people like nt Wright spend more time doing church talks and stuff than people in like theology and ethics or something is that why? well look he no i, I think it's because P- christian lay christians in america who is the largest population now, increasingly there's a chinese population as well but when you get you know people who are interested in the kind of stuff that i do so often it's, it's lay people in america who are thinking about grad school and what they read in the first instance is always virtually always biblical stuff, not theological stuff. Maybe they read Jamie Smith, um, but the vast majority is theologically interested biblical scholars. So I joke with my colleagues here that, you know, they're, they're the theologians uh, as far as the world is concerned. Um, and that can be really great, like John Barclay's stuff. Or there's a lot of, there's more and more theologically attuned biblical work coming out these days, and Barclay's in some ways the best of them. And for people that weren't, that, that didn't understand some of these categories because they're not embedded in a university context or, or seminary context, yeah, you know, the biblical studies people are, are reflecting a lot about what the text meant, right? And and then theologians are kind of saying what it means now, like, you know, and how you articulate the content of the faith in this context. How you know what what sort of ideas and and, and sentiments are come to the forebear and how you think through them. And so, and what you're saying is that you know biblical studies people now some of them are spending are trying to integrate those questions a little more, but. But to you know, to make it oversimplified, that, that sort of what what did it mean? Me, what does the text mean versus what, what you know? What does it mean versus what does it mean today? Um, there's some kind of distance. yeah. I think that's yeah, yeah. Th- and that's you know, it's it's a historical discipline versus a normative discipline in some way you could say, or an ethical discipline. Um, uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. The thing is though that you know, for a lot of Christians, what the Bible meant is what it means. <laughs> uh, you know, those two things are, are the same. Um, and so if we know that Paul really meant this, then we know what God meant. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, there's a powerful argument there. So that's part of why that stuff is always so such sort of a, a third rail. Um, 
and it gets so influential. But I think also just to go back to the question about why uh, the turn to sort of uh, Catholic theology, you know, more more traditional liturgical kind of things. I do think there's a sense of loss that people have of a loss of the past, a loss of tradition and um, especially evangelical traditions just haven't been able to, you know, th- th- somehow it feels shallow. Maybe then, maybe it's also combined with legalism and other kinds of things that are making the, the ministry not work. But so people think that the answer that to have depth is to go towards these older traditions. And I think it's basically a very good impulse, but it so completely dominates the field or has did when I was tra- training that um, I think there's time, there's room for, to push back a little bit on, on some of that consensus. So that's the thing that that is sort of like okay, I'm, I'm kind of there, there's a new there, there's a new day. What do you think is like is the stuff that's developing to take that space? Like if that's on the if that's a little on the waning side, although it's still obviously you know there's every year there's reading the Bible with the church fathers or this or that you know like th- this is still around. But there it, it sounds like there's space for new stuff. What kind of new stuff is cropping up? that you see that excites you in that, in those spaces? I would created. say two things. I I think there's a lot of room to think about, well, first, I mean, the stuff, obviously the stuff that I do, but um, I, I'm interested, the kind of thing, this attention to emotion, affect, subjectivity, uh, bringing experience back in a, in a wise, well-calibrated way in theology, uh, we're overdue for, for that. And I'm trying to do that. A few other people are trying to do that in different kinds of ways. And I think there's a lot, that's going to have at least a little bit of traction, um, just because things have gone so far in a different direction. I think uh, I'm interested, firstly, I think the the doctrine of sin, you know, it's always what doctrine is, is trendy, right? Is, is eschatology, the end, end times for a while, for, you know, the, um, or Christology, or for right now maybe the Holy Spirit is pretty trendy. But I think the doctrine of sin, I mean, in the age of, of all these things of, of Me Too and, and just all these things, the, the, the world just seems like such a more screwed up place to so many people. I think this idea that the doctrine of sin had become this deeply implausible thing, I think that's going to get revisited um, because it has such powerful, such explanatory power um, for the pathologies of, of modern life. Um, and uh, so I think there's going to be a return to interest in, in that. Um, and I think interest in, in bodies and emotions isn't going anywhere either. Just the ways in which we're, we just, we we're, we exist as material beings. Um, anyway, that sounds a little bit abstract, but I think that's actually what's happening. And and then this this turn to sort of the relationship between theology and spirituality not being ancillary or secondary, but that theology is always connected to to spirituality and prayer and and I mean that there's a lot there. That that well, that will that there's a whole seam in the in the whole long Christian tradition traditions um that that will continue to illuminate. Also you need something that that illuminates texts from the past in interesting new ways and that's so I think both of those things will recovering the doctrine of sin and paying attention to emotion and subjectivity. It's interesting. I find today when you're talking about me too, and all the power dynamics that it, it, it used to have sort of liberals and progressives that seem to have the kind of optimistic anthropology and estimation of the human condition and, and conservatives defending a kind of more austere understanding of the human condition. That seems to have flipped where liberals are wanting to expose how, dark our motives are and uh, often though without any redemptive possibility but you know if, if through the me too movements and other you know structural issues and conservatives are the ones that want to say oh well, now we're, people aren't racist or sexist in america yeah americans americans most americans are really good people it's just interesting the uh, ironic and same thing ironically like liberals used to be the kind of relativists and conservative the facts people now it's liberals we went facts 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 and conservatives ah, it's all you know one news source versus the it's it seems that there's all these cultural sh- shifts taking place <laughs> yeah. yeah that's really interesting yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I think, uh, but especially if we can find ways to talk about sin and the problems, pathologies, the darkness, uh, and all of its many manifestations, but in ways that are neither just totally nihilistic, uh, nor um, allow a kind of just an us and the us versus them. So, you know, if you had the right politics, then actually you wouldn't be as subject to, to these things. You know, uh, I think that's, um, there's a naivete there that, again, like something like a, a, a doctrine of sin can help you think through. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a really interesting shift. <laughs> so bring it back around. You, you, we, you've talked about the theme of the article being, and, and in general, your wider work, you know, more attention to emotions and affect and things like that. So emotionally, what drives you? How does this spill into your work? Like for good or for ill, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, like who, how does that stuff play into the work and teaching you do like the subjective Simeon 
Zoll. <laughs> well, uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, partly it's why teaching is is fun and wonderful is when you're you have real, especially over here. So in in a place like Cambridge, you get a lot of one on one, one on two, just much more uh, close interaction with students, including undergraduate as well as graduate level. And so um, there, the, you know, just having a a real teaching dynamic where you're not just downloading information to someone, but have a, uh, you know them and you um, can see where they're coming from and you can learn from them and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, I find that endlessly interesting and exciting. I think um, for myself, you know, I'm always reflecting. I talk about it a little bit in the article, at least obliquely, but on, you know, what are these, uh, what are the, there's certain things I've sort of like annoyed about for, that I've been annoyed about for a long time and I want to say my piece and then I can move on. There's like a therapy of like, you know, I'm, I'm really tired of people appealing to non-competitive agency to solve every problem in theology. So I wrote an article about it and now I'm more chilled about it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know. Um, and so there is a way in which you are kind of working out dialogues you've been having with people explicitly and also in your head for a very long time. Um, but I'm now at a stage where I've written enough of that stuff that I feel more free just to, to think fresh and, and new ways. Um, uh, yeah, but um, I find endlessly interesting the question of the plausibility of Christianity in the context or the contexts of, of modernity, of late modernity. Um, I think that one's not going anywhere. It's a question that's, uh, that's interesting. Obviously, like we said, it's, it's really obvious in the UK. Um, you know, why do some people just find it so totally implausible when 100 years ago their ancestors, or, or maybe more, but um, found it totally plausible and what, what are the conditions that have changed? Um, so I, I think I'll be interested in that my whole my whole life. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there's been this trend? I mean, OK, if Karl Bart and Schleiermacher to some degree, although Bart differently. But if Karl Bart, one of his great lessons was theology has got to stand on its own two legs, right? It can't be subsumed into philosophy or sociology or anything. It's got it's like what you were saying about use theory with Luther. Like it's got to have its own interior logic of the gospel. It's got to be rooted in God's revelation in Christ. If you're a Christian, not be borrowed from some ancillary discipline or something. If, if there's if there's that thing that's really important, has the shadow side of that been though that theologians who have taken some of those insights seriously have not been attentive enough to so what people would call the apologetic exercise or the missiological exercise. And so, if if Bart was worried that you know if you if you take the wider cultural concerns too seriously, it'll nickel and dime you to death, and you won't believe anything. Is there the opposite temptation in light of that influence, say the post-liberal kind of influence, that it's going the other way, where it's, hey, here's our narrative, and if you like it, great. If not, there's other narratives out there. I mean, is there need? does theology itself need to pay a little more missiological attention hmm. to the world it works Well, in? I think um, partly you do see, actually, a reaction exactly like you're describing already. I think it is part of why people like... Um, Thomism in all its forms. It's really a way of, of saying, well, no, we actually think certain things about the nature of the world and God, and, and we can defend them rationally. Um, also, the, the appeal of analytic methods and philosophy of religion uh, these days, like, I think it's also people pushing back and wanting to say, well, no, we, there, there are good reasons to think these things, and uh, we can use our reason and not just sort of um, kind of reflect on our narratives all the time. Uh, and so I think that I think that's salutary. Personally, I'm most interested in the ways in which I, the, the, my biggest methodological problem with Bart, in a way, is the the way it, it closes you off to the really interesting stuff that's happening in other disciplines. I mean, I'm surrounded by academics who are not theologians uh, in my life um, very often, and that's been the most stimulating thing to be with, whether it's art historians or physicists, and talking about these same issues, but from other perspectives or, or learning what's going on in other academic disciplines is so interesting and fruitful. And it's a shame that theology has cut itself off uh, at times um, from those things. I, I mean, I understand the arguments uh, for doing so, but it just seems like... Yeah, it's funny. It didn't cut Bart off. Like that wasn't right, who Bart yeah. was. Like, I mean, the guy was reading everything and interacting with all sorts of people. And you see it, especially in the fine print of the church. Dynamics, the, Absolutely. The small print section. He's a very worldly guy. And yet sometimes like disciples are weird in that sense, right? Like that you, people that start to take Bart seriously very often don't become these interesting worldly cosmopolitan mm. Christian thinkers that can be kind of parochial. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's interesting how that's the case, because he, like you say, he was reading everything all the time or reading lots of things. Um, yeah, that's true. I think uh, another problem is that, that whole way of thinking, it slightly transposes questions from the early 20th century into the present, where, where in the, there was this, there were reasons why people were extremely nervous about what, you know, what is the ground of theology? How do you defend its right to exist in university? in Germany in, you know, 1880 or 1910. 
And uh, the Bard is partly writing out of that world of where people are trying to establish theology as a so-called scientific discipline. And we're just not doing, people just aren't actually doing that these days. Those are not the live questions. And so we shouldn't let our methods be shaped by answers to questions we're no longer asking. Um, I think we can still learn from the past, but, uh, you know, we're not really looking for the ground of the day. I mean, we're more interested in what works and the pragmatic repair and uh, and that kind of thing than trying to find some unassailable um place to do theology from yeah and it seems like certain things like you know when bart is 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 in his heyday things like historical criticism and 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 how they they work especially in the german context are just different right like it it wasn't as easy to do something like what nt Wright does and push against the kind of sort of the, the 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 presuppositions of a sort of secularized historical methodology right like now the the kind like people are much more conscious of pre-commitments and disciplines and stuff you know so there's the myth of neutrality kind of thing creates a different kind of context for interdisciplinary engagement than some that maybe in the earlier part of the century was available to people yeah i think that's true i think that's definitely true though they still apply people often still apply those uh those standards to theology only you know that we we, we have no uh we're perfectly happy with um to be humble in relation to all other disciplines, except for when it comes to religion, which we know all about, uh, despite not having studied it. You do encounter that kind of thing as well. Um, but we are in a very different period, I think, uh, methodologically. And I think there's more space to, to, to reopen up some of the, not Schleiermacher's questions directly, but um, the best insights there. Your birth order, you're the last of three. Do you think that, how do you think that shapes you as a theologian, being the youngest child? That's a good question. I think I spent a lot of my life not talking and listening and feeling like I couldn't get a word in, but not mind, even kind of having peace with that. And I think I, I do that a little bit theologically. I listen um, uh, in a way that maybe helps, uh, helps my work. Um, I don't find things threatening uh, if I don't get to talk. Uh, uh, something like that. Um, also, if you're quiet, people just assume, I don't know, they project all kinds of things onto you, but it rarely hurts you. Uh, but now I'm at a phase more where I'm trying to say more and be less quiet um, and actually get out what I think uh, and not just worry about the career ladder and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, but definitely being the youngest has affected me that way. Also, I, I, I tend to, I don't like overstatement. And I think I, I grew up a little bit, there was some um, certain kinds of overstatement around that were both really, really interesting uh, in my family, but also I, I always want to say something that I think I can really defend against its, against a critic. It drove me crazy when something really, really uh, profound would be said by someone, but in a way that was overstated, and so people would dismiss it. So that's a, that. There's part of my personal psychohistory in relation to my theological method. Your dad is one of my favorite theologians, one of my favorite people, and I, I mean the guy. But I, I think it's fair to say he doesn't share your concern about overstatement all the time. <laughs> So is that part of the psychological background there? Something, something like that. It could be, it could be. But also, but also, I'm learning from him. I mean, I, I wouldn't have anything to say if it weren't learning. He, he knows how to be creative and how to think and how to uh, how to never quite rest with just thinking you've got it all figured out. And so there's a restlessness intellectually that, um, uh, in a sense, that these things really matter that I got from him. That I think it have been hugely helpful um, in trying to do this as a as a career. He's quite a guy. Yeah, and I think one of the things he's combined and inspired, you know, you see the echoes of this in a ministry like Mockingbird, which your brother David started, is that a lot of times the people that have a sort of traditional Augustinian anthropology that takes sin really seriously uh, are not worldly in the best sense. And a lot of times the people that are very, that are very interested in where God's active in the world tend to be Pollyannish about the human condition. And your dad kind of, it's almost like there's a difference in the world, which is in, in John's sense, you know, what we make of it in human culture, and yet the creation and what God does in it. And so it, your, your dad's had this ability to sort of not be a glum person, despite having a kind of austere sense of the human condition. He says it with a smile, and he sees God alive everywhere in novels and movies and crab sci-fi things and and that that's a, a beautiful thing to hold intention that sort of honest expression of the human condition and yet this picture of christ playing all around us in a, you know a thousand places absolutely uh i think it's it's a kind of a you know holy grail how do you communicate that how do you share that how do you get someone else to have that same kind of sensibility because it is partly kind of uh, a sensibility, but for him also, it's he, he, he's like just completely inoculated, and I think he gave a little bit of this to me. I'd hope uh, against 
kind of settling into just one way of, I mean, he just would never compartmentalize between his, his life, his interest, you know, whether it's crab movies or Mozart, it's all, if, if it's interesting, it's interesting. Um, if it teaches you something about the nature of the world and God and yourself, then who cares what it is? So there's no, there's no snobbery and there are no walls intellectually. Um, there's, there's a total in, uh, integration um, there, which is very creative. And uh, I don't know where it, where it comes from. It's, it's part of it. It's like a personality thing. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to convey that to students, um, you know, how, how, to, how to not be threatened by what they disagree with in a way that they can really learn from it while also not just giving up uh, at the first sign of, uh, of attack. Anyway, it's interesting. Once again, though, a temperament in the theology does make a difference. I was reading, I've been reading Gregory Nazianz and I'm lecturing to undergrads on like Gregory Nazianz and next week. And he was such a guy who was engaged in the cultural life of his time. And I think I'm, I'm convinced that that is a big part of why he was in many ways, just about the best Trinitarian theologian maybe ever. Uh, he had a language for talking about extremely difficult things that came actually out of his, his poetry, his Greek background, you know, Greek drama, you know, kind of background rather than simply uh, out of being smart or something. Well, that, yeah. And, and, as you argue in your article, it sounds like he had a sense for how to use those things, you know, in the theological endeavor. It's, I mean, thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for writing this piece, Tradition and Its Use, The Ethics of Theological Retrieval. Anybody that's interested in theology, it's a really, I'd highly recommend it. Thanks a lot, Scott. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Simeon for coming on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Until next time, friends, bear thee well.